All right. Hey, guys. <laughs> hey, thank you. We appreciate that. Uh, Seth floated the idea of them singing happy birthday before the band got off stage, and I'm so glad that didn't happen. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, again, welcome to Mercy Hill. Um, if I haven't met you, my name's Jesse. I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill. Um, and to be honest, that's still a weird thing for me to say. We're about two, two weeks in now after our elder affirmation, um, and the word elder hasn't quite set in yet. Um, and part of that probably has to do uh, with the fact that elders I've known from my past from other churches have been on the older and grayer side. Um, and I'm only 35, which I understand in a room full of mostly college students puts me on that like old and gray side. Like I might as well sign up for Medicare at this point. Um, but it's still settling in, um, and I am super excited to be here. Um, and I just want to say something from our elder team. Um, at, at least as far, as far as those of us who, like, you don't hear from from stage very often or who aren't on staff. Um, let me just say this. Elders are not some exceptional group of men with some unique sage-like wisdom, okay? Ernie has been an elder here for two years, so you should know that by now, right? Um, we are clearly nothing special, and that's a total joke. Like, I've known Ernie for over 10 years, um, and he's one of the few men that has made me who I am today. Um, and he's not going to toot his own horn because he's mostly the guy that's up here. And so I just want to take a second to say something about him. Um, there are not many of you in this room that will see the sacrifice Ernie and his family have made and will continue to make for the sake of the kingdom in Cincinnati and on the campus of UC. Um, it's not easy to be a lead pastor of a church plant. Um, but he deeply cares about seeing the gospel spread and seeing you thrive as he follows Christ, or as you follow Christ. He loves this church, and we're incredibly grateful to serve alongside him. So just hear that from us. Um, but let me go back to what I was saying. I really do mean it when I say that there really is nothing special about us. Um, we may be a little bit older in our faith, and when I say we, I mean the elder team, um, but at our core, we're no different from you guys. Um, we're people just like you, sinners in need of grace, we have fears, we have doubts, we have heartbreak, we have sin struggles, every one of us. But by the grace of God, we are what we are, redeemed sons of the King, and that has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with who God is. Um, we are walking, talking examples of his grace. Um, and my hope is that when you see us, that's what you see. Um, and at the same time, we don't want to take the role of elder lightly because scripture doesn't. Um, we understand the weight that has been impressed upon us from the qualifications lift, listed in Titus and 1 Timothy and what our duties are from Acts, James, 1 Peter, to guard sound doctrine, shepherd, care for the sick, and be responsible stewards of resources. Uh, Hebrews 13 would, would go as far as to say, leaders keep watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Like, that's extremely heavy. And can I be honest here and just say that every single one of us in that elder and training room have at one point wondered if we should be in that room. Um, because we know what's inside us. We're prone to wander. We know it's at stake, and that's a scary thing. Um, the book on eldership that our team read last summer describes the church as Jesus' most prized possession, his bride. And we don't want to take that lightly. But we are eager and excited to be a part of what, what God is doing at Mercy Hill. Uh, we love the Lord, we love this church, and we love you. 
Um, so just hear that from us. Um, okay, and then so a little bit more about me and my family uh, before we jump into the text. I think there's a picture for us coming up here. Yep, that's my family. <clears throat> um, the lovely lady that did announcements earlier is indeed my wife. Um, we've been married for almost nine years now, so I'm doing something right. Um, she works at Mercy Hill here as the Connection Group Director. Uh, and something you may not know about her is that she's a physical therapist. Um, she is a doctor of physical therapy. Uh, so if you guys could address her by that, she would really appreciate that. She would love that. Um, so if you need your back popped or your neck popped, get in line because I have preference. Um, and then that little guy is our son. That's Elliot. Um, and if you've been around here after service at all, you've probably seen him helping tear down the stage or chairs, which makes sense. Because uh, last week we checked, he's in the 97th percentile for both height and weight. Okay, that didn't come from either of us. Still don't know how it happened. Um, but he's a little tank, uh, and he's the sweetest boy you'll ever meet. Um, his birthday is Tuesday, and he'll be three. Uh, mine's today, as Hazel said, so birthdays are two days apart, uh, which is lots of fun. Um, we're doing a train-themed birthday party, uh, and we're still not sure what we're doing for Elliot's party yet. All right. Uh, he is the goodness of God um, on full display in our lives, and he's easily the greatest gift that God has given to us as a couple. Um, and speaking of gifts, we're going to read a passage this morning that contains some of the most misused verses in Scripture. Um, there are lots of, pe of preachers and entire denominations built around twisting verses like the one that Seth read, where, G where Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You've probably seen them on TV, and they'll act as though they're helping you find the fullest life that God has to offer. But what I actually think they're really good at is, is tightening your grip on things that are temporary and taking your eyes off of things that are eternal. Um, and at the same time, I think it's really easy to look at verses like this and wonder, when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, does he mean that? Like, are those words actually true? Especially when you've been asking over and over for things that are good. Like, maybe you're not asking for a bigger house. Maybe you're asking for a spouse, for children, for a family member to be healed. Um, but the words just seem to go nowhere. Is Jesus really able to do anything you ask? And does he really want to give you good gifts? Let's pray with that said. Um, God... This verse is meant to bring us comfort. It's meant to bring us joy. Um, but God, too often we twist it for our own desires and passions. Um, and so God, show us what you want us to see this morning, that you are God, and because you are God, you can give us all things in your name for your glory and our joy. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Ooh, that was my mic. All right. Uh, with that said, let's jump into the text. Turn to John 14, 8 through 14. Um, if this is your first time with us at Mercy Hill, the way we structure our teachings on Sunday is that we go through books of the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line, and we do it for as long as it takes, okay? So we've been in John, I don't know, like six, seven months, four years, I don't know, some, like a long time. We'll probably be there after most of you college students graduate, so subscribe to our podcast. Um, <clears throat> John 14 is part of a longer section of the book of John called the Upper Room Discourse. Um, and this section takes up four chapters of the book of John, but only encompasses one afternoon and one evening. Okay, it's Jesus' parting words to his disciples. He's going to be betrayed within a matter of hours. 
Um, and at this point, with everything Jesus has been saying to his disciples, you got to imagine that their heads are swirling a little bit, right? Um, like they've been drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, so here's some things they've learned in the last chapter, which is just, like I said, the course of a couple hours. Jesus washes their feet and blows Peter's mind that the king of the universe is stooping down to wash Peter's dirty feet. Like, mind blown. Um, they just found out that one of the 12 sitting at the table will, will betray Jesus. And then Jesus lets them know that he's going to leave, and they can't come with him. Um, and they'll learn in the next couple of chapters that that's somehow a good thing. Um, and then lastly, Peter just learned that he will personally deny Jesus before the morning light. That's within a matter of hours. Um, and that leaves us in verse 8. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start um, I'm going to start that off by reading verse 7 and going into verse 8, so you can kind of see the context. Um, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. He says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Um, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Um, so right off the bat, it seems like Philip asked a dumb question, right? Um, Jesus says it pretty straightforward in verse 7. He says, hey, you know me, so you've seen the Father. And for us, that sounds like those are dots that should be pretty easy to connect. Um, I mean, Jesus has even said it before. This isn't the first time. Like only two chapters ago, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then in John 10, Jesus flat out says, I and my Father are one. So this is not new stuff. Like this They've been over this before, but it just goes right over Philip's head. Um, and I think it's pretty safe to assume that the, the rest of the disciples aren't tracking either. I um, mean, here's a few things I want you to see about this, because this is important. Uh, proximity does not necessarily produce understanding. Um, they've been with Jesus for almost three years now. This is the end of his earthly ministry. Um, it's not like these guys are new recruits. He didn't just pull them off the street. They've been following around for a while. Um, and this should be comforting to us. Like sometimes I think we, we think if I could just see God, if I could just walk with Jesus, ask him the questions I want to ask, and then he'll answer me and everything would be great, I'll understand everything. Um, but throughout the Gospels, what we see is the disciples show an incredible lack of understanding. Um, like a lot of times they just don't get it, right? I mean, think about Peter. He's the most ready, fire, aim kind of guy. Um, in one verse, he's hitting the nail on the head by understanding that Jesus in the Christ is the Christ, and literally seven verses later, Jesus calls him Satan. Like, that's a spectrum. That's in the same conversation. Um, and here's why this matters. Take comfort in knowing the apostles, those who are closest to Jesus, were flawed and imperfect. It's really easy to put them on a pedestal especially since they wrote a good chunk of the New Testament, which is fair, like that's understandable. But it's easy to forget that for the majority of Jesus's earthly ministry, they didn't get it. Um, and take comfort in knowing that understanding the depth of who Jesus is is a lifelong process. Give yourself some grace. Sanctification doesn't happen overnight, and it certainly didn't for the disciples. Um, but take comfort knowing that, as Paul says later in Philippians, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Um, and second, I think it's really easy to look how Jesus responds to the disciples' as frustration. Like, he's like, oh, come on, guys, like, why don't you get this yet? But that, and that's certainly understandable, 
But remember back to last week, um, if you were here when Ernie uh, preached, how patient and caring Jesus is towards the disciples because of how they freaked out when they learned that he's going to go somewhere that they can't follow. Like, this is that same conversation, right? I don't think Jesus' tone suddenly shifts from being compassionate to just throwing up his hands and saying, I'm done with you guys. Um, Aaron pointed this out, Aaron Neal pointed this out in our connection group this week, and I think he's right. Um, it's almost like these are rhetorical questions Jesus is asking back to Philip to plead with him because he just wants him to understand. He wants their best. He wants them to find their hope in him. And he continues to give them comfort. Like the verse that, re that we read later where he says, ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. Um, that's a comfort. That's meant to be a comfort for them. He is patient with their lack of understanding. These are the guys that are going to carry on his earthly ministry. And he wasn't freaking out about how slow it took them to understand. Um, they're just regular dudes who helped turn the world upside down because of an extraordinary God. That's God's pattern. And think about that when, you're when you feel inadequate. Okay? All right, let's look at, it, look at this again. <clears throat> Jesus says this twice in two verses. He says, the Father is in him and he is in the Father. Like, this is an incredible claim. Um, and it's not the first time he's made a claim like this. So let's quickly go through some of the other verses. Um, these are in the Gospels. This is John. John 1 says, the word was God. There we go. Great. Um, the word was God. John 10.30 says, I and my Father are one. John 12.45 says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then later in some of the epistles, Colossians 1 says this, he is the image of of the invisible God, and Philippians 1 says, existing in the form of God, he did not count, or he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, okay? So this is one of many verses where Jesus is making this claim, but let's bring back John 14, 10, the one that we're in right now. <clears throat> he says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So this is slightly different than Jesus's other claims about God, about being God, um, and notice what he doesn't say here, and this is important. He doesn't say, I am the Father, and the Father is me. Um, and here's what I want you to see. Jesus is God, but Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus. Okay, they are one, yet distinct. I'll say that one more time. They are one, yet distinct. Um, all right, Seth Neal talked about this in awesome detail last fall, so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. Um, I think it was early December, but it was called Brilliant Authority, and he tackled the Trinity. It was, it was done really well, um, but if you were there for that sermon, you remembered this illustration. There it is. Um, this is a simple visual of the Trinity. Um, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are all God, but they are not each other. Um, this is a great verse that drives home that point. Jesus is, the Jesus is in the Father, the Father is in Jesus, but they are not each other, right? Okay, and then the Godhead, or the Trinity, exists three in one simultaneously. Jesus, God didn't morph into Jesus one day and then morph into the Father another, depending on the circumstance. They exist three in one simultaneously. All right, so let's keep reading in verse 10. <clears throat> the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. And here's another, one, another thing I want you to see from these verses. 
Jesus and the Father are working together in perfect unity. Um, In verse 10, we catch a glimpse of the relationship between the Father and the Son, where Jesus says, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So Jesus is acting in perfect submission to the Father's will. Although they are both God, Jesus obeys the Father and carries out the will of the Father perfectly. Um, And I think it's easy to look at a verse like that where Jesus obeys the Father, and we're like, I mean, yeah, he's Jesus. Like, that makes sense. Um, But oftentimes we fail to grasp and take hold of, of this, that for those of us who are in Christ, this perfect obedience is credited to you. His obedience is yours. Um, And when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failure to obey. Uh, He sees Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father. What we should have been, Jesus was. Um, And we have nothing to add to this. Like, it's not like we can improve on Jesus' obedience. We bring nothing to the equation. Um, It's not like he went 90 and we came 10 kind of thing. That's not how this works. Um, In fact, the only thing that we bring to the equation is our sin. Um, and that Jesus freely took on himself. Um, I've heard it said this way, the punishment for our sins was poured out on Jesus on the cross as though he committed our sins. When the Father sees Jesus' obedience, the Father attributes Jesus' obedience to us as though we obeyed perfectly. This is what's called the great exchange. Uh, Christ gets our sin, we get his righteousness. Um, And by the way, if you're here this morning and this is a new concept for you or you've never actually trusted in Jesus for this exchange, um, like your first step is to believe this for yourself. Um, If this is something you need more info about or have questions on, um, grab me, grab someone on staff, grab an elder. Like we would love to talk to you more about this. Um, But I'll say it again, circling back. If you're in Christ, this obedience is yours. It's massively unfair, but it's incredibly beautiful. All right. So why does this matter? Um, Why does it matter that Jesus and the Father are one yet distinct? And why does it matter that Jesus is God? Because the next couple of sentences that Jesus says can only be said by God. Um, Jesus follows us up with two massive promises, and he can actually follow through with what he says because he is God. Um, So there's some other verses that go with this. Colossians says, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, he's talking about Jesus, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for, through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews says it this way, um, lost my place. Hebrews says it this way, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, just by his words. Um, And he's not just blowing smoke. Like, he is God, and he can follow through on his promises because of that. He is not limited to anyone or anything. I mean, visible and invisible, abstract things like rulers and powers and authorities. The president has a job because of Jesus. Like, that's crazy. He can literally do anything he wants. Jesus is fully capable, and he is fully able. Um, So let me say it very simply. Because Jesus is God, he has the power to give us all things in his name. Um, So with that in mind, let's read these next three verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, 
This I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right, there is a lot there. So let's break this down a little bit. What are the greater works that he's talking about in verse 12? Um, Do you ever read something like this and wonder if you're doing Christianity right? Um, Like, have you done greater works than Jesus? Um, A lot of us hear this verse and we hear miracles and extraordinary sign gifts and things like that. And you're not necessarily wrong, but how many of you have turned water into wine at a dinner party recently? Like, I haven't. If you have, I'll invite you. Um, But let me tell you this. Just because this isn't you doesn't mean you're missing it. So what's happening here? Um, And before we get there, it actually seems like he implies that these greater works they will do because he leaves. Um, And so spoiler alert, later in John 16, Jesus tells the disciples that it's good that he leaves. That's two chapters later in the same upper room discourse. So what happens after Jesus leaves? That's a question. I mean, it's this. Because when he leaves, he will send the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives believers the ability to continue on the works of the Son. That's John 16. Okay, so that doesn't quite answer the question. Like, what are these greater works? Um, Well, there's one big thing that the Holy Spirit does for the rest of the world that wasn't possible at this time when Jesus is talking to his disciples. And it's this. The Holy Spirit points the world to Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Um, Let me put it this way. This is a quote from John Piper. He says, what are, the, what are the greater works that you will do, all of you? You will receive the Holy Spirit as the spirit of the crucified and risen Christ. Before the resurrection of Jesus, nobody in the history of the world had ever done that, not even Jesus. And in the power of that absolutely new experience, the indwelling of the crucified and risen Christ, your works of love and your message of life in union with Christ will point to the glory of the risen Son of God. And you will be the instrument of their forgiveness on the basis of the finished work of Christ. This will be new. This will be greater than Jesus' earthly miracles because this is what he came to accomplish by his death and resurrection. So what he's saying here is this, that the earthly miracles of Jesus were amazing. Like they're not meant to be minimized. They show who he is. They come to reveal the Father. But this is pre-death and resurrection, right? So even greater works than that is that you can point the world to the finished work of Jesus on the cross for salvation. All right, so let me keep going. Verse 13, Uh, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, Um, so let's pause for a sec. Uh, This verse leaves the door wide open. Like, this sounds like a blank check. I mean, anything. Um, And so I was curious here, so I asked my connection group, like, what— because I know the crazy things that I prayed over the years, like prayed a lot of them. Um, but I was curious here and I asked my connection group, what are some of the funniest things or most unusual things that you prayed for? Okay. And I was not disappointed. <clears throat> um, let me read some of these for you. First one, prayed that their sports team would win. Okay. We've all done that. Uh, prayed for X-Men powers. <laughs> I mean, what's not awesome about that? Uh, prayed that their toys would come alive. Uh, if you're curious, that was Dylan Gilbert, and he probably played it, <laughs> prayed that last night. <clears throat> um, for mommy to give them an older brother, think about it. Uh, you can't ask for biological siblings that are older than you. Uh, for Jesus not to come back 
until he could play high school football. Yep, praying that Jesus would hold off on rescuing the world from the bondage of corruption and the restoration of all things so Aaron Neal could play football. Okay. Uh, For the bowel movements to stop. We've all done that. We've all been there. For the bowel movements to come back. Yikes. Um, Yeah, that was an overseas mission trip, so fill in the blanks makes sense. Uh, For a deer to walk under the stand. All you hunters have done that one. I've definitely done that. I also need to pray for accuracy. It's another story. Okay. Uh, For that special someone to reciprocate feelings for them. Uh, And I'll be honest, that one was mine. I was a good little youth group high school kid, Christian high school kid. Um, Anyone else here prayed for that one? Okay, just me. That's awesome. You guys are liars. Um, (laughs) All right. That was like 90% of my journals back in high school. Like, it was so cringy. Like, never open your high school journals. Like, it's just bad. So, anyway, but, but these, these things bring up something that, is, that makes sense. Like, if this passage is true, why didn't these things happen? Right? Like, if this passage is true, why don't I have a Lamborghini? Um, or why aren't all you dudes married to Taylor Swift? Or why aren't all you girls best friends with Taylor Swift? Because we know that's what matters, okay? Um, and that sounds absurd, but that's serious. Like, if this passage is true, why didn't those things happen? So let's take it to another level. If this passage is true, why did it take us four years to finally have a child? And we had to watch our friends have children and enter into parenthood, and we just had to watch and wait. And why, after trying for a second for two years, can we still not give Elliot a sibling? That's six out of nine years of our marriage where we had to continue to hear the words, wait. Um, And maybe you're in a similar spot. Maybe it's not children. Maybe you've been longing for companionship for a spouse, um, and college came and went, and here you are several years later with seemingly nothing to show for all the praying. Or maybe you've just been asking for direction, And the future just feels so uncertain. You're not sure this career is going to mean anything. And your degree feels like an expensive list of empty promises. And you prayed and you prayed in Jesus' name. And it's just quiet. Is Jesus good if he doesn't give us what we ask for? Is he true to his word if our requests go unanswered or even denied? All right, and here's what's sad. I know people personally who have undoubtedly walked away from the faith because they were told by preachers that these three verses meant that God wants them to be healthy, wealthy, happy, and comfortable. And all you had to do is pray in Jesus' name. But then, when it didn't happen, those preachers put the blame on them, saying they clearly didn't have enough faith. That kind of manipulation of scripture is ugly and gross. But like I said earlier in my sermon, these are some of the most misused verses in all of scripture. Second Timothy would call these preachers people that tickle your ears to suit their own passions and desires. And that they have turned away from sound doctrine. And Paul says to Timothy, be sober-minded, 
and beware of these people. Um, but if your own lived experience isn't enough, let's take a look at um, let's take a look at Paul. This is Second Corinthians twelve. He says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of all the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Three times he pleaded, and God said no. He didn't remove that thing. So let me ask you this. Do you have more faith than Paul? Um, he wrote almost half the books in the New Testament. Like, that man is a giant in our faith. But God says to him, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Um, or what about the disciples? Did the disciples live their best life now? A life of luxury? Um, well, church history tells us that all but one of them were martyred for their faith. Um, Peter was likely crucified upside down, and tradition tells us that John, the writer of this book that we're reading right now, was boiled alive in oil. Like, man. So it's pretty safe to say earthly wealth and comfort is not what's in view in these verses. All right, so if he's not talking about health and wealth, then what's he talking about? Because that can sort of beg the question, does God even want to give you good things? Like, should we just be asceticists and then try to forget gaining any sort of pleasure or joy? Um, but let's quickly look at Matthew 7, where Jesus says this. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And then further on in Luke, Jesus tells a parable of the persistent widow in which he pretty much says, hey, even if you think you don't hear an answer, keep asking. Um, he wants to give good gifts to his children. Okay, so God wants to give us good gifts, but he's not going to give me that Lamborghini. Okay, so how do you balance that out? Like, what gives? Um, and there's two descriptors in here that, that I think we need to look at. And the first one is this. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. So what does he mean by asking in my name? Well, first off, invoking someone's character in the ancient world represented what that person was like. So praying in Jesus's name means praying in a way or asking for things that are consistent with his character and will. It means that your prayers are aligning with who Jesus is. All right. Second, Jesus is pointing to himself as the bridge between us and the Father. When you pray in Jesus's name, you're saying, I am trusting in what Jesus has done on my behalf in order to gain access to the Father. The phrase is not an incantation. Um, like, God's not tossing out your prayer and laughing at you just because you forgot to say that sentence. Um, it's not the phrase that gives you access to the Father. It's the person. And that's Jesus. The second descriptor is this. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And this is the purpose statement of what God wants you to ask for, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And I think if we're not careful, it's easy to look at a verse like this and think, okay, what's in that for me? Um, and I think it's really easy to miss here. When we think about asking God for things or read that verse and see a blank check, we think, what's the best thing that I could possibly ask for? And our minds go to things like a new house, a better job, 
more financial freedom, or maybe they're things that are like really good things, um, like a spouse, children, fam- safety, a job, family. Those things are fine. And let me say this before we get too much further. Those are good things to ask for. Like God's not saying don't ask for those things. Um, they aren't inherently bad. Like my wife and I pray every day, sometimes multiple times a day for a second child. And God delights in that. Okay, so just hear that. But a lot of times we completely miss that the greatest thing that God could possibly give us is himself. His most unbelievable gift to us is not his stuff or his earthly blessings. It's him. And the worldly trinkets or even the good things that we ask for, a wife, job, children, pale in comparison to the life and joy that's offered to us by God. Um, The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a document written by some church leaders in the Reformation, says this. The very first, it's like a Q&A type format, um, and it's the very first question it poses is this. What is the chief end of man? Like, what is man's ultimate aim? Why do we exist? And the answer, the the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Psalm 38 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 16 says this way, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At the end of the day, the greatest, most enjoyable, most life-giving thing that you could ask for from God is the life that he offers. The satisfaction he brings, the joy that he brings right? Okay, so what does all this have to do with glory? Let me illustrate it this way. Anybody watching Suits right now? Yeah, okay, yeah, a lot of you. Well, kind of a lot of you. I thought it'd be more. That's okay. Um, Well, here we are. Like, it's weird because I feel like all my friends are finally watching the show, and it's like a resurgence of the show. It's not new. Like, it came out like 2011, but some, for some reason, everybody is watching it right now, Um, and it's pretty entertaining. Like, it's not my favorite show of all time, but it's still pretty good don't necessarily condone it. That's not what I'm saying, but it's still a great show. Like, it's a good show. My wife and I are into it, Um, and all of staff, like all of the Mercy Hill staff is watching it right now, too, and they didn't plan that. Like, they all just started watching it at the same time for some reason, Um, and they all like it. You know how I know? Because they talk about it, Um, and that sounds like a no-brainer. That sounds super basic, but if you think about it, when you enjoy something, you glorify it. You talk about it, And here's my point. Enjoyment of God rolls up in worship and results in God being glorified. You might have heard it put this way. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And this is a right response. Like there is only one thing that can bring lasting satisfaction and lasting joy, and that is God. So he is worthy of that praise and that glory. And here's another thing I want you to see. God knows this. He knows that the best thing for you is for you to find your joy in him. And a lot of times, he loves you too much to give you the thing that you've been asking for that will not bring joy. Man, that's hard to see. Like, we have such a finite, tunnel-visioned view of what God is doing that it's oftentimes impossible for us to see what he's doing but he loves you. And when you can't see what he's doing, he's not laughing at you. He's not indifferent. 
I mean, think about like when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, like you might know this story in, the, in uh, I don't remember what, one of the gospels. Um, he walks to the tomb and he's minutes away. He's walk, he walks to Lazarus's tomb um, and he's minutes away from bringing Lazarus back to life. Like he's about to solve the problem and he sees all of his friends and Lazarus's family grieving and weeping. And you know what he does? He weeps. He's about to raise this guy from the dead in about five minutes. But you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, come on, get up, watch this. No, he has compassion on them and their grieving. He weeps with them, even though Jesus knows it's only temporary. So bringing it back to the text, what are you asking for? What's going to matter in a hundred years? Do you think you'll stand before God one day and bow before him and say, Jesus, I'm so glad you gave me that fat paycheck in a $5 million house? Probably not. So here's my question. With that in view, are your asks too small? Do you have 50 years in view when God has 50,000 years in view? And I guarantee you that none of the 12 disciples or any follower of Christ after they've gone to glory would look back at their lives on earth and wish they could have had it more comfortable. And in the end, I'm sure that they would say that God gave them the best possible thing that they could have asked for, himself. J.R. Packer, who's an author, says it this way. He says, still he seeks the fellowship of his people, and he sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. So maybe you're here this morning and you're right in the middle of God lovingly in his perfect compassion, detaching your hands from the things of this world. And maybe you've asked and asked God in the name of Jesus for God to grant your request or take that thing away. Man, that's painful. But let me tell you, he knows, he cares, he is not indifferent, and Christian, he deeply deeply loves you. Keep asking. He is able. He is capable. He wants to give you good gifts, and he will. And a hundred years from now, we will look back and say that God is perfect in all that he did. Let's pray. God, that is so hard to wrap our minds around. Uh, we just have such a short-sighted view of things, um, but God, you know the best thing for us. You know what brings life, and that's yourself. Um, and so God, forgive us for the times when we question, but God, thank you that you are patient with us when we question. Um, and thank you that you want us to continue to ask for things. And God, we ask that you would give us um, just give us an eternal view and we can't see that. Thank you, God, for your love and grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.